Hello and welcome to the Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood and you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown and WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, always streaming on WOMR.org. In today's world, it seems that even the most honest attempts to talk about diversity can lead to massive frustration at the workplace or school or even the holiday table. Few areas of communication are more fraught than those involving issues of identity for non-dominant groups such as women, people of color, the LGBTQ plus community, or the disabled. Our words matter. Our language has the capacity to diminish people or empower them to feel safe, respected, engaged, and valued. The trouble is, we often don't know what language to use. Temperatures run high when it comes to conversations about identity, and the consequences of getting it wrong often turn us away from engagement with the very people we want to ally with. Today we're talking about a really helpful new book that presents a practical path forward in the struggle to have meaningful conversations with people from disempowered groups. My guest is David Glasgow. He's the executive director of the Meltzer Center for Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging, and an adjunct professor at the NYU School of Law. His new book, co-written with Kenji Yoshino, is Say the Right Thing, How to Talk About Identity, Diversity, and Justice. David Glasgow, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. Well, I'd like you to take a minute to describe the tipping point in history we find ourselves in today, a time when many people, high power people, but also people who just want to do the right thing, feel really apprehensive about having conversations with disempowered disempowered groups because they'll be challenged. You acknowledge this democratization of discomfort and you welcome it. So what's going on? Why all the anxiety? Yeah, so the term democratization of discomfort is from the uh, social psychologist Jennifer Richardson. And, and what she's really describing there is that, you know, these conversations about identity issues have been extremely uncomfortable for a really long time for members of marginalized groups, right? So if you are a member of the LGBT community or a woman or a person of color, having conversations about these topics, you often worry that you're going to get retaliated against or get dismissed or tone policed or ignored by your conversation partner. And what's really shifted more recently because of uh, greater activism by marginalized groups, so social movements like Black Lives Matter and Me Too and the LGBTQ rights movement and so forth, um, is that a lot of these groups are gaining more power in society. We're becoming a lot more aware of issues of diversity. And so that discomfort is now spreading over to even members of the more majority or dominant groups in society where now um, even those of us who belong to who are say white or a man on gender issues for example we worry now you know am i going to say the wrong thing am i going to hurt someone i care about or am i going to get cancelled and so that's really what that's describing is now it's not just one side of the conversation feeling uncomfortable it's really everyone participating in these conversations so when confronted about their words and actions by people from disempowered groups, privileged people often get defensive and lapse into predictable, even if unconscious, behaviors. I've been guilty of them myself, and I think I've witnessed all of them. So I'd like you to describe um, the four areas that people of um, who come to the conversation from the powered position 
tend to uh, retreat to. And in the book, they're avoid, deflect, deny, attack. What do we all do, those people of us who come from an empowered position, when we have these conversations and feel threatened? Yeah, so we call these the four conversational traps, and we often shorten it to ADDA, so avoid, deflect, deny, attack. So avoid is, you know, kind of what it sounds like. You run away from the conversation. It can mean, you know, physically leaving the room, or it can mean just going silent, looking at your phone, not really saying what you really think. Deflect is where you change the subject. So someone's come to you to talk about some particular issue of bias or exclusion that they might be feeling. And instead of engaging with them on that subject, you change it to something else. So you might focus on their tone. You might say something like, oh, you know, you may have a point, but I really don't appreciate the way that you just put it now. Um, or you might deflect to yourself and start talking about all the hardships that you have experienced or start talking about, you know, your own good moral character and defending yourself. Um, deny is where you are engaged with the person on the subject that they've raised. So you're not changing the subject, but you're reflexively dismissing whatever it is that they're telling you. You're just putting up a wall and saying, no, you're wrong about that. You know, no questions asked. And then attack is where you really make it personal. So you go after the other person on, you know, by using you know, insults or sarcasm or eye rolling and that kind of behavior. And so if you think of these as all sort of fight or flight type responses, because we feel extremely uncomfortable in these conversations, avoid and deflect a kind of like the flight responses and then deny and attack are more like the fight responses. It's pretty common to bristle um, at being accused of having privilege, white privilege, male privilege, able-bodied privilege, especially if you feel that you did not have an easy time of it growing up. But in your book, you make the concept easier to understand when you liken privileges and disadvantages to headwinds and tailwinds. Can you unpack that for us and explain why it's so easy to be unaware of our privileges? Yeah. So this, um, you know, analogy to headwinds and tailwinds, a number of other kind of writers and scholars have used this analogy, like Debbie Irving and Vinay Myers. And it's really getting at the point that there's some interesting psychological research around how, you know, as we go through life, we tend not to notice when we have a tailwind at our back helping us along the way. We tend to focus much more on the areas of our lives where we're encountering difficulties. So, you know, there's been some, you know, fun studies where they pair people up for a trivia contest. And, you know, even if they ask people, you know, questions of equivalent difficulty, most people tend to think that they got the tougher questions compared to their, you know, partner in the trivia contest, right? The other person had it easy. Or, you know, if you're a football fan, you tend to focus on your team's supposed, you know, disadvantages in the season schedule rather than the advantages that they have. And so that's something that um, we all carry with us. It's much easier to notice when we're working against a tailwind, rather, working against a headwind rather than when we have a tailwind at our back. And so that's why it's really critical to sort of, um, you know, pause and think a little bit more carefully about areas where we might actually have benefited in some way from having advantages. And so when we talk about privilege in the book, you know, I think it's really important to underscore that it really doesn't mean, you know, what you said people often interpret it to mean, which is the idea that, you know, you had a really easy time in your life, you've never encountered any hardship in your life. 
Rather, it's really just getting at the fact that, you know, we all have baskets of advantage and disadvantage. I think anyone who reflects on their own life, their upbringing, um, will be able to identify, you know, areas where they've had it really tough, where they've had to fight against challenges, whether it's financial challenges or issues within their family, and then maybe other areas where they've, you know, um, had it easier than, than most people and haven't had to deal with some issues like a disability, for instance. You tell us that in difficult conversations, when a member of a dominant group starts to feel threatened and attacked, they should attempt to move away from a reflexive response to a reflective one. What does that, what does that mean? Yeah, so the reflexive responses are, you know, really those avoid, deflect, deny, and attack behaviors that I was referring to before, and they come from a place of, you know, great emotional discomfort usually. So it's kind of like an impulsive knee-jerk reaction to the conversation. You know, I hear something that someone has said, I get really worked up about it, I find myself feeling really threatened and upset, and so I kind of lash out or run away by engaging in ADDA. And so what we want people to do instead is actually sort of take a beat to build those skills of emotional resilience and of curiosity so that they can actually engage with the conversation in a more thoughtful and considered kind of way, which is what we mean by reflective. So, you know, to take an example of this, if you look at denial, we draw a distinction between denial and disagreement. So as I mentioned, if you engage in denial, we think that often the bad form of that behavior is just putting up a wall and just saying, no, you're wrong, uh, without actually really considering whether the other person is right with curiosity, you're just sort of dismissing automatically what they have to say. Now, we distinguish that from respectful disagreement, where you've actually listened with curiosity to what the other person has said, you're feeling emotionally grounded, you've weighed the arguments that they've raised with you, and yet you still have a thoughtful difference of opinion with the other person. That, we would say, is a reflective form of disagreement, and that's perfectly okay. And in fact, we encourage that kind of disagreement. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today, we're talking about the anxiety attached to having conversations that concern identity and how we might make them easier. My, my guest is David Glasgow, the executive director of the Meltzer Center for Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging at NYU School of Law. He's the co-author of Say the Right Thing, How to Talk About Identity, Diversity, and justice. David, sometimes when we're in conversation with people who've experienced a lot of impression of oppression, we feel like the target of a tremendous amount of hostility. But you tell us that it might have less to do with us personally and more to do with that person's accumulated experience. You sort of use the example of a can of soda that's been shaken. We can't see what's inside the can, of course, but then it explodes. So what might we do in that situation? How do we what you call turn down the volume and right size the situation that's going on. Yeah, so this, you know, analogy to the can of soda is a great analogy from the uh, diversity consultant Lily Zhang, who, you know, points out that when you are the target of a lot of, you know, what some might call microaggressions, you could just sort of refer to that as just being, you know, daily non-inclusive behavior that, you know, you experience over and over and over, you know, each one of those might seem like not that big a deal on its own. But when you're constantly experiencing it, it is a little bit like adding an extra shake to the can. And so what what sometimes happens in these conversations if you're on the receiving end of it you know you might have someone get very upset at something that you've said or done right and they might explode right they might 
say something to you where you do get a bit taken aback by the tone that they've used or you think that they were being too harsh on you. And what we invite people to do is reflect on sometimes that behavior is not actually because of something that you've said or done personally. It may actually be that they've accumulated so many of those, you know, soda can shakes that you just happened to be there in that moment when the can exploded. And so we don't want you to kind of take that extremely personally, at least not without having a further conversation with them to understand whether or not they intended it to be personal. And so to kind of get that, um, to mind that gap between, you know, your own sort of perception of the situation and the reality of the situation, we just invite people to really think about whether or not the language that the other person is using is the same as the language that you know, the, the way that you understand the language to mean. So, you know, a common a situation where this, this can unfold is, you know, across generations where we see often younger people using terms like, you know, racist or privilege or white supremacy or what have you in ways that, you know, folks from older generations sometimes find very confronting because they mean it to mean something very extreme, bigoted and prejudiced. Whereas often we see younger people coming through where we teach at NYU using those terms to refer to more unconscious or systemic forms of bias. And so oftentimes, you know, you might hear someone using these terms or even saying that you yourself have exhibited racism and you immediately think, oh, my goodness, they're accusing me of being a bigot. And what we invite people to do is right size that feedback by just inquiring you know, with themselves, but also with the other person about, well, what did you mean by that term? Because it may mean that when they're using the term racist, they're actually not using it in that extremely personal way. They might just be referring to unconscious forms of bias. If you're a member of a dominant group and you're having a conversation with a person from a non-dominant group and it seems to have hit a wall, you suggest a strategy called showing your work. And I really like that. And it demonstrates to the other person that you're not simply being a, a capricious pig, but have come to what you consider a well-reasoned conclusion. Explain the concept of showing your work and why it might be successful. Yeah, so this is in a chapter we have on, on how to disagree with someone respectfully. And so here, it's really getting at the point that, you know, across a person's lifetime, if they belong to, you know, one of these marginalized groups, they will have encountered a lot of that reflexive denial that I was talking about. A lot of people who really don't understand the issues, don't know a lot about the issues, but have shut them down and ignored them and dismissed them. And so when you disagree with someone in these conversations, oftentimes the person opposite you in the conversation is going to just sort of assume based on their past experience that your disagreement is coming from a place of ignorance. And so you kind of have to demonstrate to them that it's not that actually in this instance i've really thought about this topic i've you know read books about it or i've you know read articles or i've talked to plenty of other people about it and here's my actual reasoning for engaging you know for having the viewpoint that i have and we think that's a really essential thing to do when you're communicating a disagreement on an identity issue because you're really trying to distinguish yourself from all of the opponents from that person's past who perhaps didn't do any work and just reflexively dismissed what they had to say by showing that, no, 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 I actually have really thought about this. And I think you're sort of showing your work to show your respect. According to the book, disagreements about identity topics 
sometimes occur in a, in a social or societal rather than an individual context. And some topics should simply be avoided altogether because they're ridiculous. Society has already made its judgment. You rate them according to the colors of a traffic signal, green, red, and yellow. Can you give us an example of each? Yeah, this is really getting at the point that, you know, disagreements, you know, come in sort of different flavors. Not every disagreement about identity issues is the same. And so we use gender as a lens to think about this in the book. So if you think about a topic like gender quotas, so a lot of countries have quotas for women on, you know, corporate boards or in legislative chambers where by law they're required to have a particular percentage of women. And now, you know, we have discussions and debates about that in the classes that we teach at NYU or you see that in society. And, you know, I think most people think that, you know, even if they have strong opinions on one side or the other of that debate, usually people think that that's a legitimate debate to have. It's not, you know, you don't want to just shut down the entire discussion from the outset, right? So we call that a green disagreement. It can still be very heated, but it's certainly legitimate to talk about it. On the opposite extreme would be a red um, disagreement. And so we, you know, cite somebody who makes the argument that women shouldn't be allowed to vote or to serve in government, right? Now, that's clearly in the kind of current era a sort of a ridiculous sort of argument to make and something that I think most of us, if someone tried to seriously make that argument in the public arena today, we would just sort of want to shut down the whole discussion and say, well, that's absurd. We're not having a debate. We settled that issue, you know, a century ago. We're not going to reopen the issue of whether women are allowed to vote. In the middle are yellow disagreements. And so this is really, I think, often the trickiest kind of disagreement because what, what we're getting at with the yellow ones are, you know, areas where, you know, a significant chunk of society thinks this is a perfectly legitimate topic to debate. Let's have that debate. We can have strong opinions about it, but let's welcome a different viewpoints. And then another huge chunk of society says, actually, we should be treating this like the, you know, the women aren't allowed to vote debate. We should be saying we've moved on from this. We've already sort of had that discussion. And so it's ridiculous for you to even open this subject for debate. And so we use the example in the book of the notorious memo that uh, James Damore wrote at Google and ultimately got fired for writing, you know, a number of years ago where he, you know, penned a memo arguing that part of the reason why women weren't as well represented in his field in tech as men is because, you know, men and women have certain, you know, biological differences that shape the kind of career choices that they make that kind of make sort of men lead, lean toward more kind of technical type roles and women lean toward other type roles. Now, that is an example where, you know, there's a significant number of people in society that would just say, you know, that's that's like saying women can't vote. Like, that's just an absurd argument. We shouldn't even be having this debate at all. And then there's a lot of people, if you kind of step outside the bubble that sort of we're in as authors <laughs> in our world, there's a lot of people who actually say, no, no, that is actually a legitimate topic to talk about and to sort of actually ask whether or not there are biological differences there that drive these kinds of decisions. And I think the reason why the yellow ones are so tricky is that there's really two discussions happening at once. There's the discussion about the substance of the issue. Is it right or wrong? And then there's also the discussion about, you know, is this legitimate even for us to be discussing in the first place? And so I think those are really like the most agonizing forms of disagreement to have. Hmm. 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about the anxiety attached to having conversations that concern identity and how we might make them easier. My guest is David Glasgow, the executive director of the Meltzer Center for Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging at NYU School of Law. He's the co-author of Say the Right Thing, How to Talk About Identity, Diversity, and justice. David, you cite the work of a psychiatrist who says that members of dominant groups disproportionately adopt a never regret, never explain, never apologize attitude. Authentic apologies are hard. They make us very vulnerable. But they're worth the risk because they can build genuine bonds. If you would, tell us what an authentic apology might sound like versus what to avoid. Sure. So we think um, authentic apologies all contain, you know, four elements, which you call the four R's of recognition, responsibility, remorse, and redress. So recognition is where you just recognize the harm that was caused. So a common mistake people make here is to do what's called an if apology. So they might say something like, I'm sorry if I offended you or if I did anything, you know, I'm sorry, um, or if you're upset, I'm sorry. And that's not really recognizing the harm. So first step is to actually acknowledge that harm was caused. The second is to take responsibility for it. So to actually acknowledge that you personally caused the harm, right? And here, often people make the mistake of engaging in a but apology. So they'll say, I'm sorry, but I was tired, or I'm sorry, but I didn't mean it, or I'm sorry, but I'm not a racist, or something like that. And here, again, you know, it's much better to just have a, a, a clear spoken sort of statement acknowledging that you take responsibility for causing that harm. And then the next step is remorse. And this is just a genuine statement of contrition of just displaying to the other person that you're genuinely sorry for what you did. And a really gobsmacking example of someone, you know, failing at this step of remorse was the celebrity chef Mario Batali, who, you know, was accused of, of sexual harassment and he ended up writing an apology in his newsletter and it sort of started out like he was going on track to be an okay sort of an apology but then at the end he wrote you know p.s here's my recipe for pizza dough cinnamon rolls and he attached a link to the recipe and a picture of the rolls and you know we use that as an example to illustrate that you know it's kind of hard to say that someone's genuinely remorseful if they're you know including a pizza dough cinnamon roll recipe in in their apology right and then finally um, is redress. And that's really about saying, back up the words of an apology with real action. So, you know, sometimes people don't like apologies because it's kind of all all words. And so what we want people to do is acknowledge that in an, in, in an apology, if you've done something wrong, you want to actually show the other person that you're taking tangible steps to repair the harm that you caused them. So that could be as simple as, you know, checking in with them again in the future just to see that your, you know, conduct has improved since last time. Or if you've done something that requires some kind of a correction that you actually engage in that correction. And so we think if you follow those four steps in your head of recognition, responsibility, remorse and redress, then you're, you know, well on your way to issuing a good apology. It's not uncommon to hear the story of a well-meaning leader or person from a dominant group who wants to make a situation better for people affected by bias but screws the whole thing up, sometimes because they didn't have the experience or knowledge of the affected group or because they couldn't imagine themselves in those people's shoes or didn't even know enough about them. So one fix for this, if you want to make things better and make sure that you don't screw up is what you call the platinum rule. Can you walk us through that? 
Yeah, so the Platinum Rule is, you know, really an adaptation of the Golden Rule. Um, you know, again, it's not our coinage, the Platinum Rule, but we've used it here in this context of allyship because, you know, the Golden Rule, as everyone sort of knows, is to treat other people as you would wish to be treated. And, you know, in the context of diversity and inclusion issues, the insight really that's important to remember is that other people are not necessarily the same as you are and don't necessarily have the same preferences and goals as you do. And so when you're trying to reach out as an ally to support them, you really have to think carefully about, you know, am I helping this person in the way in which they want to be helped, not just in the way that I'm where I'm imposing my own preferences on them. And so a couple of, you know, strategies for doing that are, you know, first of all, you want to ask yourself, does the affected person actually want my help in this situation? There's some you know, interesting social science studies around how, you know, if, for, for instance, white helpers, you know, offer unsolicited help on a word puzzle to black students, that those black students may end up actually feeling even more disempowered as a result of just being given unsolicited help because the unsolicited help carries with it an implication that they can't hack it on their own, right? So you want to kind of stop and think, you know, is my intervention here actually implying in some way that the person I'm trying to help can't deal with it on their own and they need me to kind of swoop in as their savior? And then secondly, you know, think about whether or not the form of help that you're wishing to give the other person is actually going to be most helpful to that person. So an example we come across a lot is in a meeting where, you know, a woman gets interrupted a lot in the meeting or she has her point, you know, taken from her by another man in the meeting who said the same thing that she said five minutes earlier. And then, you know, one a male colleague who considers himself an ally sort of swoops in there in the meeting and makes a big deal out of it and says, oh, you know, can you believe this happened to Mary? Like, how must she feel about that, that she's just been interrupted? And then poor Mary is sitting there feeling mortified and, you know, embarrassed that this person has kind of just commandeered the meeting to make this all about her experience. And so there it's really prompting people to think about, you know, is what I'm proposing to do in this situation actually going to help the person from their perspective as they would want to be helpful, helpful? Or am I just doing this because I want to, you know, show what a great ally I am, for example. It's easy enough to come down hard on people who cause pain with their non-inclusive behavior. But and this is a very touching thing in the book. You remind us that a wiser tack might be a bit of kindness and understanding. That is, to take the time to educate and rehabilitate them. Why should we do that? Well, you know, a big reason why is, you know, if you exclude, um, you know, truly egregious behavior, obviously there are instances where people engage in all sorts of, you know, horrible bigotry where I don't think that, you know, displaying sort of kindness and understanding is necessarily the best response. But, you know, all of us engage in non-inclusive behavior sometimes in these conversations, right? So we might use the wrong gender pronouns to refer to a trans person or confuse two people who belong to the same ethnic group with each other or laugh at an objectionable joke or, or use the wrong terminology. And we argue in the book that, you know, because all of us engage in that sometimes, we really want to build a culture where people are greeted with generosity when they make mistakes and actually given real tools to help them grow past those mistakes rather than immediately, you know, cancelled and condemned for making them. And, you know, another big reason, aside from the fact that, you know, we all struggle with this and we all make mistakes, it's just that when people make these errors, often it's not coming from a place of malice. Often it's just coming from, you know, that they're unaware of something and that they just need someone to help them and to sort of educate them on, on a better way forward. And so we think it's much, much more conducive 
to real growth and learning on that person's part to actually approach them in that generous way rather than, you know, jumping down their throats. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time today. The book really was one of the most helpful ones I've read in that area. My guest today has been David Glasgow from the Meltzer Center for Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging at NYU. I want to thank Matty Dunn for his tech work on the show. Say the Right Thing is the name of the book, and it was recently published by Atria. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on how to have conversations that build an inclusive culture, one interview at a time. Bye for now.